Hi, this is Tim Mann of Focus, and you're listening to my chapter as the story grows. What would you say you do here? Have a good time all the time. Dominate. Who's got it better than us? Nobody! What in God's holy name are you blathering about? Well, I'll tell you what I'm blathering about. I've got information, man. I want you to be realistic. What do you love about music? I am being realistic. As the story grows. I always want to be part of a small rebellion. You got this, Travis. Make him wait for it. Boom. And I'm so excited to talk to you. Uh, Focused is uh, considered by a lot of people the godfather of the spirit-filled hardcore scene. You're one of the original Tooth & Nail bands, so I'm super excited to to have you on today to talk about Focused and and music and the scene in general. Cool. Um, So, have you... Did you grow up in California? Yeah, I did. Yeah, Yeah, I grew up in Anaheim, Southern California, right down the street from Disneyland. Yeah, I was a um, product of what they called back in the 70s latchkey kids. My parents were divorced when I was young, and um, we would come home. My mom was a working mom, and so my brother and I stayed at home, you know, after school and pretty much did whatever we wanted until mom got home at 5 or 6 o'clock at night. So um, growing up in that household, it was tough. Um, It was verbal abuse between the three of us that went on, and... um, uh, for me, the only outlet I really had was skateboarding. Yeah. And um, there was there was something going on, and I didn't know that there was really anything wrong with me. But I would be I would really hyperactive. I'm real energetic, and then I'd have these really down times, and I would just get really depressed. And I would get really depressed mostly because of the verbal warfare that was going on in my house. And um, I just would. Uh, you know, I couldn't take it anymore, and I would just run out in the corner at night and just skate. And it was, like, the only time I think that it was, like, therapy for me because, you know, I had to concentrate on one thing and one thing only. And um, that that depression that I was getting uh, was coming from all sorts of different areas, just a, a lack of, you know, self-esteem. I grew up really thin and tall. I was really tall at a young age. And uh, that stuff was just getting getting to me. And um, uh, when I was, uh, see, 12 years old, um, I was in junior high school, and I went to a school dance, and somebody brought in Black Flag, and they played a few songs, and it just blew me away. And I knew that punk rock was just, that was my outlet. That's what I was, that's where I belonged. And it just so happened that maybe a month later, uh, I went to the whiskey with my stepbrother, and I saw Black Flag X and the Germs. 
that was my first show ever. Oh wow! And um, so it, it, that's that's what happened for me. It just took off right there, and I couldn't get enough of it. I would go take the bus all the way to Long Beach to a place called Zed Records. I would take the bus to Pier Records, and um, I would just go and buy records just by cover. You know, I would ask the the uh, the guys like, "Hey, what's new? You know, what band sounds like this or whatever?" And then as I got more into it, I would actually go and buy bands that were th- that were thanked on somebody else's thank you list, um, yeah, especially yeah. With, with hardcore bands. Um, mm-hmm. And then what happened was uh, I got a chance. I listened to Agnostic Front for the first time, and that was it. That was was that's what got me really heavily into hardcore, and just um, listening to all you know the different stuff from, coming from New York and coming from Southern California. So I grew up going to all of the big clubs. Um, everywhere from like the Hong Kong Cafe, Anti Club to Long Beach's Fender's Ballroom, um, Olympic Auditorium. I've seen I, there, I've seen a lot of bands. Put it this way, um, <laughs> a lot. Every, every everywhere from like GBH to um, Seven Seconds. You know, um, going to going to shows. They used to mix Straight Edge fans with punk bands. So I would mm-hmm. go, and the opening band would be Doggy Style and Uniform Choice that were straightest bands, and they'd be playing with, like, say, GVH or um, Discharge. And so I, I was not straight edge, and um, I owned Seven Seconds and Uniform Choice Records, and I knew all the lyrics, and I was singing along with them in front, but, I mean, I was far from being straight edge. And um, what happened to me in high school was, yeah, I partied and did the whole thing, hanging out with friends, drinking, smoking weed, whatever, but I found cocaine. And oh, man. that gave me um, the confidence that I was looking for. It gave me uh, everything that was going on in my life was numb and gone at that time. The only problem is that you're only high for a certain amount of time. And when you come down, those problems are still going to be there. But I got heavily into it bad enough that I stole money from my parents' business and they kicked me out of the house. Um, I moved to Colorado because I had previous friends when I lived there for a year when I was in junior high school. And I figured I could just go there, get a job, get an apartment, and everything would be great. So I get there on a bus with 164 bucks in my pocket and I got to spend the night in a hotel room the first night. And when my, my, my money was gone. So I was on the streets for about five or six days, and I've never been alone like that. I've never had to go and panhandle money to get food. And then what happened is I got lucky enough to meet a guy who did a punk rock radio station at the local college in Fort Collins, Colorado. And I went over to the – he would do it at night, and I went over to the radio station, and I started, you know – hanging out with him and we'd play music and talk and so he introduced me to five friends where I got to live with these punks in this uh, small house. Now living in Colorado I still did my thing and partied a little bit but what happened was is I was still doing crimes and stuff that I had been doing you know, growing up in, in California just doing stupid stuff and most of the things I was doing in Colorado was actually, I wouldn't, I would say to survive. You know, I was um, stealing things to buy food, not even to mm-hmm. party. And so I got caught twice, and I did two stints in 
the local, um, uh, it would be a, like a county jail, but it's a um, detention center where they house hardened criminals and uh, anybody that just has minor infractions. But I had uh, two felonies and three misdemeanors. So mm. out of a, out of a year's time in Colorado, I did at least five months locked up. And um, that's where I gave my life to God, in a jail cell. Um, wow. I went to the bookstore or the library in jail, and I got a Bible. And one morning, the door just clicks open in your cell. And um, you just walk out, and there's trays sitting around the tables in the uh, area where you eat. And I got up and put my shoes on. I walked right up to this door didn't open it, and there's a slit window that goes down about five inches across, and it's about six feet up and down. And I was watching all these guys come out of their rooms, and I said to myself, like, if I don't get straight and wise up, I'm going to be in and out of this institution for the rest of my life. And that night I gave gave my life to God. Uh, then I uh, got lucky, real lucky, to have my parents in, that were in California, my stepmom and my dad, to get involved in my case, and they got in touch with my public defender and actually worked a deal with the judge that I would be able to get on probation if I did a program called Teen Challenge in California, where they wanted to put me in two years in maximum security prison. The judge was going to make an example out of me. And um, God just totally intervened, and I came back to California. I had to be on a waiting list to get into this program so because I wasn't straight out of prison or I wasn't a heroin addict trying to kick, and this was the kind of people that, that went into Teen Challenge. So I had a good six months um, of just going to Bible studies on Thursday, and then my parents, part of my probation and living with them was to attend their church. So I, I uh, started attending this church in Seal Beach, and... I started getting a really strong foundation of just that Bible study on Thursday and then going to this church. And they didn't have a college group, and I was probably a good three years older than all the high school kids, so they let me just go and hang out with them. Uh, I went, finished my um, uh, Bible studies on, on uh, Thursdays to get into Teen Challenge. I was probated there for 12 or 13 months. I ended up only doing eight months. I left the program on due to uh, theology, I would say, conflictions um, because of me going to the church in Seal Beach and just getting a strong foundation of my uh, faith and my my saving grace from, from God. And I had some disagreements with uh, these people on Teeth Challenge, and so I left. And I thought, well, I could be probated back to Colorado and serve time. And... Uh, God intervened again, and I had never met my probation officer who was in Colorado, just talked to her on the phone and wrote her letters. And she said, just pay the rest of your fines and uh, send your final letter, and you'll be off probation. And so, uh, you know, I, I could have went back and got locked up again. And then this is where focus started. In that high school group, my friend Matt Archuleta and John Shetler, the three of us got together and said, let's, uh, let's start a band. That's from cool. there, um, what we did was <laughs> we um, we wanted to put this band together, and we needed 
just another guitar player and a drummer. And so our first scout to go out and find a guitar player. And John knew some people that went to a, this is silly, <laughs> it was a Christian dance club. <laughs> this is um, 1991. And so we go to this place, and we had, they had talked to me and told me that this guy, Jeff Boletto, was in, you know, interested in playing. Well, I knew who Jeff was just because he had played in a band called Half Off, and um, he knew the guys and know for an answer, and he knew a lot of people that were coming from the hardcore scene that I was that I grew up in. And I remember even seeing him at Fender's Ballroom and not knowing who he was. You know, I just knew, hey, this guy, he knows about hardcore. So this is, mm -hmm. this is somebody we want to get. So I was really excited about getting him. So Jeff joined the band, and he was in another band, I can't recall the name, and they were friends with the drummer, put us in touch with Al Christensen. We had one practice together, the five of us, and that was it. We took off right from there. Um, I'm sorry, let me go back one. <laughs> I forgot. Okay. We wrote a we wrote a song, our first song, with the drummer uh, was the son of our pastor. He was kind of a musical genius. He played about 20 different instruments. This kid was really smart and musically inclined. So we wrote a song with him, and we did our first thing as focus was a talent show at our church. And let me tell you, <laughs> the people in the audience didn't know what to think. You got three guys up there with shorts on, and you know we were metal. We don't have long hair, wearing caps, and we're playing this loud, crazy music, and their their jaws dropped. We thought it was great. You know, we played our song, but um. And then to get back to when we got a hold of Al and we had Focus actually together, our next show would have been just a backyard party at John's house and about maybe 30 to our closest friends came. And we made uh, long sleeve t-shirts. We made Focus shirts that we wanted to sell to our friends and generate money to make a demo tape. And we sold all these shirts. Well, we were going to a local club in Long Beach called Toe Jam to go see hardcore bands. And one night we went to go see uh, Inside Out and uh, the Stripe guys were opening up for them. And I was wearing a focus shirt at the show and after the show, Jeff had went up and talked with the Stripe guys. He was really personable and I think the people knew him from being in Half Off and he was being part of, you know, in that scene. And uh, he went up and talked to those guys and got their phone number. And I think it was only maybe a week or two weeks after that when they called us up and said, would you be interested in coming down to Chula Vista, which is in San Diego, and playing a gig? You guys could open up. And on that bill was going to be half off. I'm sorry. Strike that. Have no part, which became mean season. Strife, unbroken, and a band called Caged. So our first show, real show, is a secular straight-edge hardcore show. And um, I remember being excited. We had, like, a five-song set list, and one of the songs we used to cover was Chromex Malfunction. And um, that was uh, exciting for me because that's a that's a big band uh, growing up for me. And um, so we played this show. Now, the wild part was we played on Friday night. And in Irvine, on Friday and Saturday, 
was this huge Christian festival that this guy has us booked on for Saturday night. So we're playing Chula Vista on Friday. The next day we go down to Irvine, and Irvine Bren Center is on the campus of UC Irvine, and it's huge. It's like their basketball coliseum, you know. And there's all these bands that are playing on our day. I think there's a good 20 bands, and just the bands that are big enough that I can remember with, like, Mortal, uh, Scattered Field, Rose, um, Deliverance, and Crucified were headlining. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, but it was a flop. It was a complete disruption. The guy just didn't know what he was doing. There was not really a lot of people there. He had chairs all the way up to the front of the barricades where there would be no room for anybody to move around or dance. And we we were actually the first band to get people out of their seats. So we played in the middle of the day on this huge stage. Now, mind you, we're, we're coming from a basement the night before in a small little platform stage to this big production of light smoke machines, I mean, barricade, huge stage. And it was just shock for us, you know, to do the two back-to-back like that. And so kids got up out of their seats and started to move around, and security stopped them. So we played our set. We got a really good uh, reaction. We sold a lot of T-shirts, and we sold demos. And right after we played, we did an interview for this kid's magazine. In the interview, he asked me, what would you consider your music to sound like? Because, to be honest, they were completely shocked. What are you guys? You're not punk rock. You're not metal. So we're explaining to him what hardcore is. So when he asked me, what do you guys consider your sound, it just came to me, and I just said, we're spirit-filled hardcore. So he writes that down, and for us, I was writing it everywhere. We'd do the big X and then write the SFHC inside the X. Yeah. And so that night, um, Crucified played. We moved all the chairs out of the way, and we had a big pit, and uh, we celebrated, and that was a good time. And so I would say that was the beginning of Spirit-Filled Hardcore. Um, we, We were starting to play a lot more shows, and most of our shows were with secular straight-edge bands. Um, We were accepted by most of our friends in the bands, like Jeff knew John Coyle from Outspoken. He knew Jeff Bunch from um, Reason to Believe and Sensefield, and he knew all these guys in the scene, and so we were finding we were playing with a lot more straight-edge bands than we were Christian bands. Mm Mm-hmm. So I would book a show, say, at a church, and I'd put Function and Bean Season, and then we'd have Unashamed and Us or Centerpoint, and, and then they would, like, get us a gig. Outspoken will call us up and then say, hey, you want to come down and play Simi Valley with us and Strife? So we're here we are. We're part of the 90s hardcore scene. And in playing those shows, those people were accepting us. They didn't, you know, agree with what we were, the way we lived or what I was singing about, but we were a hardcore band. So we had random people that would yell stuff at us. We had a girl that we used to call Penny because she'd come to a club and she'd change in 50 cents worth of a couple quarters to get 50 pennies and she'd throw them at us. And I remember 
I I remember yelling from the crowd, "Come on, man! Stop throwing pennies! Can you at least give us a buck or two? <laughs> so that was kind of funny. But as we kept playing, um, these bands started popping up, and I would say Unashamed was the first. Now, first of all, the only two bands that are coming out that know anything about hardcore when we first started was Us, us and Six Feet Deep. Those guys are from Ohio, and talking with them, meeting them, I mean, they knew what hardcore was. They were out yeah. there playing with, uh, with bands like Integrity and a lot of other secular bands out there. So with us, let's say that was Unashamed probably was the first first band that came along with them and um, Outnumbered. And we introduced them to, well, we you know, our our phrase, Spiritual Hardcore. And Unashamed made some T-shirts, and they put Spiritual Hardcore on their shirt. And we had them on our shirts. And so we saw what was going on as we kept playing shows um, at churches, and we kept playing these hardcore shows. These bands, these Christian kids, just started coming up. There was Centerpoint, Time and Again, Engage, Impact. There were all these bands coming from Southern California, even out in the Inland Empire in Riverside. And so it was crazy for us to see what was going on that, you know, I was helping getting these bands to play with secular bands. So what was happening was in the secular scene, there was this Godcore thing now. You know, so the people that didn't like us were coming up with all sorts of crazy little catchphrases about what we were about, Jesus Core and this and that. But what was great was, here we were, part of 90s hardcore scene, but we were creating a whole nother scene. Yeah. Christian music, Christian music didn't know what hardcore was. Brandon Ebel didn't know what hardcore was. We educated everybody and taught them we're not punk rocks and we're not metal. You know, they didn't have any clue what it was about. So as things progressed and doing things like Cornerstone, you saw other bands like Strongarm. They were Ixtus before they were Strongarm. And all these bands just started coming up. And the the hardcore scene uh, in the Christian music industry became spiritual hardcore. So yeah. we're part of the scene, and we're created a whole other scene. So it was... Back then, it was amazing, especially in Southern California, with how many bands came around right after we started. It was pretty awesome. There were good times at shows. But like I said, we we uh, we were accepted in in the straight edge hardcore community. Um, recently, uh, on a uh, Facebook page um, called '90s Hardcore um, something or other something or other, and you know, I was putting down that, you know, we were just as much as part of the 90s hardcore scene as any one of these other bands. And a couple of kids that wrote, like, no, you know, you guys have no place in it. You know, religion has no place, and, and God has no place in hardcore, and blah, blah, blah. And there was a lot of people that I'm friends with that are not Christians, that are supporters, mm-hmm. you know, and we're writing to this guy now. I mean, you have no clue who they're friends with and like, who the kind of bands they played with, you know. And so it's it's pretty neat to see that um, I I do I have a lot of friends that I have on Facebook that are not Christians that come from the hardcore scene that, that you know they liked us yeah so it was it was a it was an exciting time back then I would say yeah, from yeah. 
91, um, just doing our first record. I mean, from 91, like starting up until, you know, 95, it was, it was a pretty exciting time. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I just talked to uh, Jeff from Unashamed and he was talking about uh, getting started um, and and we were talking about the whole like people pushing back on religion in hardcore Christianity and it was like, yeah, nobody ever like had a problem with shelter being Harry Krishna or Earth Crisis, you know, being vegan or the whole straight edge thing. It's like everybody, it, there was a unity in the music and it was like, everybody had something they were representing, right? Oh, yeah. It's amazing, like, what you say about, like, like 108 or Shelter. You know, I think... Yeah. I think because of who Ray Capo was, you know, he's uh, the straight-edge god, you know, and so everybody... But, the, you know, what's crazy is there was a lot of hardcore kids that didn't like those bands just the way they didn't like us. They just thought yeah. we just had no place in it. But they they were well accepted i think because of who he was but you know it's 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 wild because kids don't really look at like the hardcore scene and being a christian and speaking about christ is just like being in any other hardcore band you use the stage as a platform to speak Mm -hmm. what's going on in your life what's in your band what those guys are all about you know and so i can remember playing a show that we played with Undertow and um, uh, a couple other bands. And it was Undertow Unbroken um, in Big House of Suffering. But uh, my back was turned, and at the end of the song, as it turned around, there's this kid in the crowd, and he yelled out, you know, hey, this isn't a Harvest Crusade. <laughs> and from the back of the crowd was... John Pettibone, the singer of Undertow, and he yells out and he told the guy to shut up. And he <laughs> said, if you wanted to, you wanted to say stuff, join your own band or write your own zine, and you can go ahead and you know. And he was kind of using some different words, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was really, really cool. And I got a chance to talk to him afterwards because he's really strong about homophobia and. He was shocked that I told him that, you know, I've got family members that are gay and I don't treat them any different. I love them just as much as I love you, you know, and he was kind of shocked because, you know, I mean, with with um, God's view on homosexuality, you know, he, I think that he expected me to say, you know, you know, he's living this bad lifestyle and he's going to go to hell. And I'm, that's that's God's um, words. But, I mean, I, he asked me to love everyone, just like I would love, you know, him the same way. 
and um, uh, he was kind of blown away by that. But I thought it was really cool that he he backed us up, and um, you know he let this kid know you know keep your mouth shut, you know, and it was it was kind of cool how he backed us up like that. To get to, um, I think, the beginning um, when we signed with Tooth and Nail and what happened with that, uh, because our goal was we really wanted to be on a small secular label, a hardcore label. Um, I would have loved to have done a seven-inch with, like, um, uh, New Age Records, because my friend Mike, he owns it, and he plays in Outspoken, and uh, Revelation or Victory Records. Mm-hmm. And um, that didn't happen for us. But when we signed with Tooth and Nail, um, now, first of all, I want to say this. That I'm not trying to kick Tooth and Nail's ass, and I'm not talking smack about Brandon Evil. But there's things that happen to Focus that people don't know, and I think it's important that this be said. But basically... Brandon, instead of getting behind his first four artists and making us flourish and grow and put money into those bands and see things happen, think about how many bands came on to the nail every six months. Mm-hmm. He had a new artist all of the time. So what he had been doing was that hardcore bands were money to be generated for him to buy another band. Okay? Because in our contract, we're promised vinyl records. We're promised a video. Stronger about those things. And if you look at the time period from 92 recording Bow to breaking up in 95, we could have had all that time to have all that stuff done. Mm -hmm. And something happened along the way with Brandon and I. Um, Mm. we were roommates for a short period of time. And after that, I don't know what happened, but I was just ignored, uh, Mm. for some reason. And I don't know. And back then, all we wanted was a record. And we, I did not know what the term conflict of interest meant. And when we signed and did our record, Dave Bonson, our manager, who we trusted and we thought would get us the best deal and deal with Brandon. He came to us and said that um, what we're going to do is I'm going to do this with Brandon alone. And we didn't think anything of it. We thought he would just do his best, give us the best deal. So that was going to happen while we were recording our record. And then the contracts were going to be drawn up and we were going to sign them. And like I said, we didn't know about 
uh, getting a lawyer. We didn't know about having anybody look over our contracts. We were just excited to be getting a record out, you know. So Dave did his deal with Brandon alone, and we weren't there. Well, conflict of interest and not understanding what it meant would be something that's like this, and this is not right. Um, Dave, our manager, Brandon, our label owner, shared an office together, and I'm not talking about two different rooms or cubicles. They were in one little office together. That is a conflict of interest. Our manager mm-hmm. and our label working together, what had been basically going on all this time was a complete scam. They were in on it together. You know, our first tour, we went and it was going to be the our first tour where we, were, we made money. I mean, all of our other tours and anything after it happened, after we recorded our record, we either broke even or lost money for some reason. But Dave always got paid. On that first tour, we got back and we had money in our pockets and our manager loses the cash box at a car wash because they were getting the rental van washed before they returned it. We didn't ask him to ever pay us back. You know, it was just like it happened, whatever. But as the time is focused is going through our years, Dave always got paid. We would be on tour, and instead of waiting till after the tour was over, he would have his money wired every couple days after we got paid from a show. So he was getting paid. Brandon was getting paid. And he, like I said, he was using money from the hardcore bands. Like, I mean, unashamed, all these bands got, you know, I think, terrible deals. Mm-hmm. And and like I said, we, I just didn't understand what those terms are. I didn't really, we didn't put it in, in uh, any kind of light for us to see that maybe there was something going on behind the scenes. You know, we just, all we wanted was a record. We wanted to go on tour. And for me, the worst was I was wearing this mask. You know, I wanted everybody to be happy. And I didn't really ever question anybody. You know, I just wanted everything to just go smoothly well after we broke up um, I did a couple bands uh, after that and my, the last band that I did musically was a band called Flowers for June and it had um, Neil Samoy from Stavedaker and uh, a couple guys from Centerpoint and it was myself and Rebecca Keller a young girl um, that was uh, Miss Long Beach she'd been Miss USA She's a pageant girl, and we were going to be singing vocals together. And at the time, I was working for Frontline Records. And if anybody knows this, Brandon Ebel worked for Frontline before he owned Tooth and Nail. So he actually pitched us in Wish for Eden and Starflyer to Frontline, and they turned him down. They said no. They didn't want us. So that's when he quit. And he started to the nail because he wanted to get us, you know, out so that Christian industry could see there was, you know, different music out there. And um, that that's how that whole thing started. But anyways, to go back to, I was working in Frontline, and they were interested in signing Flowers for June. Now, I needed to get out of my contract 
because we broke up in 95, but we were still um, scheduled to do another record. Our contract had down for three records. So I called up Brandon, and he sent me a letter releasing me from contract that I would be able to sign with another band. And in doing that, he also sent me all my royalty statements, all my paperwork, and he sent me a copy of my contract. Okay? Now, on this contract, which I had never seen but signed, never had a copy of it, I'm looking at the back page, and it says President and CEO of Tooth & Nail Records. It says Michael Knott. And then it's crossed out, and then Brandon Ebel underneath it. So I thought, why would Michael Knott be named as President and CEO? And I just, it always was so weird to me. Like, why was it like this? And I never asked Brandon. So later on, this happened actually only a few years ago. And I met a friend that he knew a lawyer who wasn't an entertainment lawyer but knew enough about entertainment law. And I said, can you look over my contract? And this guy did, and I'm not going to tell you what he said, but basically I got screwed. There was no way that we were ever going to see any kind of money. There was no way that, I mean, we were ever going to recoup any kind of costs. It was just like, he goes, man, you guys should have had somebody look at this. Mm. And so that really, that's when I started to get a little angry. And I just thought, you know, this, we got, we got a bum deal, you know? And around about this time, um, my wife and I got married in 99, and it was around 2003, 2004, where that thing I talked about growing up and being really hyper and having a lot of energy and being excited uh, for maybe a good five days and then have these just downs, these terrible depressions, I'd be bummed out for three days. Some days didn't even want to get out of bed. So we went to a doctor to see what was wrong. And I remember in the waiting room, I grabbed a pamphlet that said, are you bipolar? And I read five questions and I looked at it and I'm reading them. And I turned to my wife and I go, this is me. And we went in to see the doctor. It took a minute and she looked at me and looked at my wife and said, he's bipolar. Wow. So I figured out growing up um, the self-medicating on the cocaine, you know, it, it just uh, numbed my problems. Um, I, I learned going to a doctor and seeing a psychologist for so long, for the last, since 2004, that I've had this all my life, that energetic times as my manic episodes and those deep funks were my depression and tooth and nail and everything that happened with focus um it affected my life for a long mm -hmm. time when we broke up um it it was awful for me and the guys didn't know about it um uh it happened where Mikey had quit the band and I called Dirk that day and his reaction was, 
you know, well, maybe it's time. You know, you're going to go through different members, and we've already had so many change-ups. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's a good thing. And I was wearing a mask again right then and there. I wanted everybody to be happy. I knew that she was over it. He wanted to do stage anchor. I knew that pretty much all the rest of the guys were going to do projects after Focus. And I went into complete depression for so many years. And because it meant so much to me. Um, I can remember the joke and the um, nickname that I was given was Rockstar because I was so far from it. Now, we would play a show, and I would exit right from the stage, sometimes go backstage, but I would go change my sweaty clothes at our Burt booth because I was going to talk to every kid that wanted to talk to me. I wanted to spend time with them and any kind of questions they had for me that God could use me. And my testimony was my strongest, you know, point in in showing my faith was where I came from and how I came to know God. And I really wanted to share that with everybody. Mm -hmm. So the breakup was really hard for me, um, really tough. So to go back to our contract and our deal, um, after working for Frontline, uh, I had ran into uh, – I'm not working there now, but I ran into the owner years later, and I asked him, when do you think – because he wasn't going to remember the exact date, but can you give me a roundabout time when Brandon would have quit Frontline Records? He gave me a month. And when I go back and I think about it, he had to have been working for Frontline Records when he signed us to Tooth and Nail. That's a conflict of interest. That's not allowed. So that was the reason why Michael's not Michael Nas' name was written on the contract. I don't know if when Dave went and did the deal with, with Brandon, if Mike Knott was actually there, if they knew together what exactly was going on, but, you know, I, I was just, uh, I was, now I was just getting more and more angry. Mm -hmm. So, um, over the, the last couple of years, I've been thinking about writing a book. And, uh, I'd say maybe last couple months, I've been calling Brandon to ask him some questions. You know, I wanted to make sure that this was going to be legit and real so could, I could write this. And the guy doesn't return my calls. Mm hmm. I haven't heard from him since 95. He came to our last show and uh, took pictures. But like I said, when we were roommates, I don't know what happened, if we how we had some falling out. Because um, there were other things that I had done for him at Cornerstone. I, I found society's finest, talked him into coming. I was working at Frontline, you know, and even had anything to do with Tooth and Nail, and I said, you got to come and check these guys out. And he was planning on going to see some pop artist. And um, I was watching these guys play at Cornerstone. He kind of wandered up and watched a few songs. And he ended up signing them. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm not expecting anything, but it's like it, he just would shun me all the time. And I couldn't, couldn't ever pinpoint why, what was the problem. But after learning about all of this stuff with my contract and everything, it just really was upsetting to me because um, 
if you listen to the um, hidden track on a bow record, it was being recorded because Dave, we did, he didn't know he was being recorded, and we wanted him to do his whole moron, you know, routine and just the things that he was talking about. And there's clips in there that people don't know exactly what we're talking about, but there were some things that were cut because of conflicts between him and I and money. But you listen to it, Brandon was excited about us. You know, he was our friend, and he wanted to do things with Focus, and we trusted him, and it's like we trusted Dave. And then, for some reason, we just got shunned. We got pushed aside, and it was a it was a bummer because, like I said, in our contract, we were promised vinyl and a video, and he could have done so much more with us, and I just took our money that he made and signed other bands into the mail. Well, it, yeah, no, it's crazy. I'm thinking because I I don't know if you ever watched the the documentary that they did a few years ago. I've heard uh, about it. Never watched it. But but he talks. Brandon talks about in the documentary about signing uh, both Focused and Wish for Eden, and using Mike not as his stand-in, uh, as like the guy in charge of Tooth and Nail instead of Brandon, which which is interesting to hear your story compared to that uh, telling of it. But if you weren't involved in the contract, maybe Mike dealt with Dave. So, um. <laughs> okay, this is first news to me. I didn't know in that documentary he did that. Really. Yeah. Wow. So that's that's news yeah. to me. But but I always thought it was crazy that they did the documentary and so much of his much of it is about focused at the beginning and you guys are not in the film at all, um, which which is crazy. It was a bummer that we were you know us and Wish for Eaton and Starfire were the first bands on the label, and he could have just done so much with us all three bands. I mean it's like that's what record labels do. You know, they find a band and they get behind them and they try to make them work. You know, you want them to mm-hmm. succeed, and um, that just didn't happen for us. And yeah. you know, it was it was a bummer. That's that's wild to hear that um, he mentions not in that in that documentary. That's really uh, that's really weird. Because yeah. Like when I told you when I got a hold of my contract and I looked at that, I thought it was really odd that he was crossed out, and then Brandon's name was written in later on. Let me ask you, you guys did a, a demo in uh, 2000. What brought that about? Okay. we Our first demo, I'll go back to that, was in 91. And nobody's, if, if you got a hold of that demo, then you had to live in Long Beach. We didn't make a lot, and we sold them all at shows. But Did your first demo stuff end up on uh, the Wheels of Progress? Only two songs. I put two okay. songs on there that came out, uh, Situation Within and... Um, uh, I want to say, well, I know Situation Within was on there because that's the name of the demo. 
And um, okay. th- that's in the works. We're hoping that that might be able to come out because okay. everything about that demo when Jeff was in the band musically is completely different than any song you've heard on Bow. My vocal style was different. I mean, we were a completely different band back then. But the demo you're talking about is At Eternity Skate. And that was a great lineup. That was myself and Mikey and Dirk, Al and John. So Al and John and I are the only original members on that. Now, the deal with that demo is it's four songs, and it's four songs that are on bow. Two of them are Absence and Walk Beside Me, and both those songs were written by John Music and Lyrics. And John never recorded on bow. So with At Eternity Skate, those four songs that are on bow, but... The songs on the demo and the songs that aren't about are completely different. They're completely yeah. different in different ways in music, different ways in lyric placement, and even lyrics. And the exciting news is that that's coming out. Right now, okay. I can't give you who's doing it exactly because it's only been talks right now, but the tapes are being sent off, and we're going to get them um, remastered and redone. And that, that demo, I can just say right now for sure, will be coming out, hopefully vinyl and a digital download. The exciting part about that, that demo is because John and Al were involved in it, and what happened was those three songs, when Jason came into the band, Jason Parker, when he recorded on Val, and we asked John to leave, um, but he didn't write any songs. He wrote riffs. What we did was we changed songs by taking parts out, not taking directly John's parts out, but we wanted to make Jason have a part of Bow. So him and Mikey kind of reconstructed songs, and so the songs on Bow are different from the demo. But he didn't actually write any songs. Um, yeah, it's kind of cool, because I've been listening to that demo recently, and I've compared the two, and... Honestly, I like them better. <laughs> I like them better. The the demo really came out. I mean, it wasn't recorded. At, we recorded it um, at Naughty Pine Studio that was owned by um, the guys in Mortal and uh, Mark, who actually um, produced or did the engineering for the Bow record. He also did the engineering for the Outer Eternity the AK demo. Yeah, so we're excited about that. That's going to be out for sure. I can't say exactly when. I can't say exactly who's going to be doing it yet, but it's coming out. And we also, my my plan is is because Brandon can't do it, as I know now, because I guess it's Sony EMI or who, I don't know who it is that, that owns the Focus Back catalog, the label that he sold it to, and then he bought it back. He yeah. doesn't own he doesn't own our masters anymore. They do, and most tooth and nail bands, after a certain amount of time, get their albums remastered and re-released. And it's just not going to happen for us. So mm-hmm. I took it upon myself, and I just I want another chance, another opportunity for that record to reach new hands. You know, yeah. we get likes on our on our Facebook page, like four or five every couple months. I mean, it's crazy how people, they, you know, they find out about us and they they don't have the record. They have no way to get it. And I want that opportunity, even though they can say it's outdated musically, but doesn't. that's not what's important to me. I want some kid to get a hold of it that doesn't know Christ that could get touched by that record. 
you know? Mm -hmm. And so I found out that they can, this guy can actually remaster it straight from CD. And I'm thinking, I don't know if I have to get a licensing deal through this label or if I can just do it on my own. I'm going to do either or. Um, I figured if I if I did it on my own, it's not like Brandon's going to care, and I don't think I'm going to sell enough records that this major label's going to see that I'm selling them. And I guess even if somebody did tip them off, I'd get a cease and desist. I don't know exactly how I'm going to do it, but I want that record to be able, you know, because I, mean, I went to school with a lot of people that I'm friends with now on Facebook. They went, you were in a band? You know, they're, you were in a Christian band? You know, yeah. After them knowing me growing up in, in my high school like how I was and who I was back then. So it'd be really exciting to be able to have that record out again and to reach people. Yeah. That's cool, man. And then uh, what brought about your uh, reunion shows in, uh, what was it, 2009? Oh, with Demon Hunter? Yeah. That was, that says reunion on there. Um, I think as Ryan Clark put that on there, um, it, for us it wasn't an actual, like, planned reunion. Um Brian had asked Dirk if we wanted to play. Dirk came to me and he said, hey, let's do this. And um, I know Andrew probably doesn't want to do it, so let's ask Jason if he would want to come and play guitar. And so we got together and started practicing, and we did that show. Um, it was fun uh, to do it. It wasn't, um, wasn't a really big show. I think that the promoter that was handling the... Um, the Demon Hunter shows, because they played, it was two nights in a row, and um, they played the night before, too, with some other bands. I think Crucify played on that show. But it was fun. For me, it was a good time. Um, I was, it was a little different now that I know that I was bipolar, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I might have talked about it from, from the stage, but it, it was, uh, for me, um, kind of, I don't really know how to explain it. It wasn't, it wasn't like playing back in the day. You know, I, I think not saying that my heart wasn't into it, it just didn't feel like a reunion to me. You know, if it was going to be a reunion, then it was either going to be with all the original members or it was going to be with the guys that were on Hope That Lies Within, you know. Yeah. And so it was fun to play, but like I said, I, they put reunion on the flyer and it wasn't a technical, you know, planned by us reunion type show. But it was fun. You know, I had a good time playing it. But And I can say right now that a reunion is most definitely probably never going to happen. Um, I know I get a lot of comments, and it's cool to see that people would want us to play again and stuff, but it's probably not going to happen. Yeah! 
well, I think I already said it. I'm really excited yeah. about the demo. I, I really, really, I think it's going to be cool that people are getting a chance to hear this because that demo, believe it or not, this is a funny story, but going to Cornerstone, uh, our first year driving out there to play impromptu stage, and if anybody knows about Cornerstone and the impromptu stage, it's like you have to basically put your name in a hat and get picked. So we go out there with just a grip of shirts and we had just recorded that demo a couple weeks before we drove out. So no mass producing and no selling. Here we are at this booth with a ghetto blaster and one tape playing it for kids that walk by and go, yeah, this is what we sound like. Do you like it? Come and see us play. <laughs> you know. And so that year, it rained every single day. And uh, Andrew from Crash Dog was the uh, guy that was in charge of the impromptu stage. And he came by our booth, and he heard the demo. And the only other um, recognition that we were getting anybody to know about the name focus was that Jeff Ballou had a uh, hooded sweatshirt we made for him, and he wore it the year before when the Crucify played. People had asked him, well, let's focus, and he kind of gave a heads up on what we were about. So we got to play the last day of this impromptu stage. It didn't rain, and he gave us the last slot of the day. And that was awesome because we had met the guys from Six Feet Deep. They had already been to Cornerstone, and they got a stage to play. And so it was really exciting to be able to hang out with those guys. And so we played, and, and there's some pictures that, that uh, from the show, and these big, big, dark clouds are rolling in behind us as we got to play. And, but that was that was pretty exciting, and our first opportunity to play there. And that was our first time to, to be out and meet, you know, kids. And for anybody that wasn't around you know, in our hometown to see us because when we would play here in Long Beach or in Southern California, it was like the same kids would come out. So it was almost like we were playing to our friends. So mm -hmm. on our tours, I was blown away that here we were coming into this club and you just see all these kids you've never seen before. And right when the music starts, all these kids are up front singing along your songs. And I was like, you have to blow me away. You know, because energy, when you see somebody in, say, Florida that's never seen you before that's a fan, it's really, really, really exciting. For people to, when they're hearing this and me telling the story, like, I, I'm I'm not upset with Brandon Ebon. I'm, I don't hate tooth and nail. I mean, it just, like I said, we didn't know what we were doing back then. All we wanted was a record. We didn't know that we needed a lawyer or all that kind of baloney, but... Um, I'm not upset. I mean, I, I was for a long time, but, you know, God's just helped me deal with that. But I want mm -hmm. everybody to know that, like, I'm not, I don't have any ill will, Ill will toward Brandon or Tooth and Nail. Yeah. It's, yeah. Just an unfortunate uh, situation. Thanks so much for chatting. I know focus means so much to so many people. And uh, you, you technically brought hardcore into the, the Christian music scene and uh, many of us will forever be grateful for that. Um, and it was, it was great, great hearing your story, man. Um, I really appreciate you sharing. Well, I, I thank you for letting me have this chance because I haven't talked about the band since 1995. I haven't done any kind of interview. And if I talk about it, it's just the friends or people that I meet. I mean, I haven't let anybody know a lot about this story. You know, there it's exciting for me to see that I can type in on Google Spirit-Filled Hardcore and there are still bands out there today that are using that to describe their music. It's pretty radical.
listening to As the Story Grows. Our theme song was written and composed by the legendary Bob Nana. If you like what you hear, subscribe on iTunes and give the show a rating and review. If you'd like to support the show financially, click on the Patreon link at asthestorygrows.com. If you enjoyed this episode, share it on social media with your friends. Much appreciated, and thanks for listening. I never felt so good.